Matthew chapter 5, beginning in verse 13, Jesus said, You are the salt of the earth, but if the salt loses its flavor, how shall it be seasoned? It is then good for nothing but to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by men. You are the light of the world. A city that is set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do they light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a lampstand, and it gives light to all who are in the house. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. In the Sermon on the Mount, remember, Jesus has been speaking about the king's constitution and the citizens in the kingdom. The theme has been righteousness, not an outward righteousness, but an inward righteousness. He's been speaking of citizenship. Who are the citizens? They are the poor in spirit in verse 3. They recognize their spiritual poverty. This leads them to a real recognition of dependence upon the king and the kingdom. The citizens mourn over their sin in verse 4. Grieving the nature of sin in self and in others. The citizens are meek, willing to live under the king's authority in verse 5. The citizen hungers and thirsts for righteousness. Righteousness in verse 6, accepting that the rightness that comes from God, the citizen is merciful, giving undeserved relief to those who face misery or difficulty or pain in verse 7. The citizen is pure in heart, clean on the inside, with a character that's committed to God and to God's standards in verse 8. The citizen is a a peacemaker, not a peace faker, not a troublemaker, committed to reconciling those things that are estranged, warring parties, bringing them together. And this prompts persecution from those who are in rebellion towards the king and towards his kingdom in verses 10 through 12. Now again, I need you to connect the dots of the sermon and the passage. Jesus speaks of the poor in verse 3, the peacemaker in verse verse, uh, 9, the persecuted in verse 10. And so when you look at this and you think, How could the poor, how could the peacemaker, how could the persecuted become the people with unprecedented power and influence? Yet that's exactly what Jesus says. Jesus says, you're the salt. You're the light in verses 13 through 16. The salt speaks of influence and preservation. Salt speaks of that powerful influence that brings things subject to corruption or decay and then retards or delays that that process. Light speaks of an outward example of testimony of good works that points to the king, that points to his kingdom. We must keep our lives pure So that we can be that salt. We delay corruption. We postpone judgment. So the gospel can be preached and practiced. Warren Wiersbe writes, quote, Our good works must accompany our dedicated lives as we let our light shine, he says, unquote. And so the citizens in Christ's kingdom is the disciple of the king. Living out the Beatitudes. And when you live out the Beatitudes, you function as salt and light in a world that's dark and corrupt. I want you to think for just a moment. How many Christians live in America? And what difference are they making? 
I read in an article in Christianity Today, it said, quote, by modest estimate, more than a quarter of the entire population of the United States have professed an evangelical conversion experience. William Iverson Riley observes that, quote, a pound of meat would surely be affected by a quarter pound of salt. If this is real Christianity, if this is real Christianity, If we really are the salt of the earth, where is the effect that Jesus speaks of, unquote? What do Americans claim? I was reading a Barna study. It said almost nine, almost nine out of ten claim that they have never doubted the existence of God. Eight out of ten believe that they will one day stand before God and give an account of their life. What you and I call, they will answer for their sin. 81% considered themselves Christians. And all of this sounds great until you ask just a few more questions and get a few more specific answers. Only 42% of those people polled could tell you that Jesus was the person speaking on the Sermon on the Mount. By the way, if somebody calls you and said, who gave the Sermon on the Mount? I'm hoping you're all going to get it right. (laughs) Particularly when they say, well, where do you go to church? I go to Calvary. And they go, hallelujah. (laughs) Only 42% knew that. Less than half were able to name the authors of the four Gospels. How could you not know about Matthew and Mark and Luke and John? This is like being in junior high school and your teacher says to you, who's buried in Grant's tomb? Is this a trick question? (laughs) Did they switch out the bodies, put Lincoln in Grant's tomb? You don't have to be a Bible genius to know Matthew and Mark and Luke and John. Only 37% believed that the Bible was infallible. When asked what book was the greatest influence in their life, only 1% mentioned the Bible. Only one, barely 1% mentioned the Bible. Gallup writes, quote, Now the disparate survey items are not only interesting in and of themselves, and perhaps in some cases shocking, but they also shed light on the complex picture of religion in America today, the widespread appeal or popularity of religion, the glaring lack of knowledge, inconsistencies of belief, in part the failure of organized religion in some respects to make a difference in our society. Part of the onus is on us, on the church, on people who name the name of Jesus, who claim to be Christians. The message of Jesus suggests that we can influence others as much as God in Christ has influenced us. And this becomes one of the key concepts. Your example and your influence is going to be directly related to your friendship, fellowship, relationship to the Lord Jesus. John MacArthur writes, quote, The church, the church cannot accept the world's self-centeredness, easy solutions, immorality, amorality, and materialism. We are called to minister to the world while being separated from its standards and ways. Sadly, however, the church today is more influenced by the world than the world is influenced by the church. Jesus says, you are salt. You are light. In salt and light, nature and function combine together as one. As salt, believers are a preservative to impede the spread of evil in society. As light, they bear a true witness to that society. If what the disciples really are 
is clearly seen, non-believers are supposed to glorify the heavenly father when they look at his children. And so we see the disciple of salt. Look for yourself. Verse 13, read it. You are the salt of the earth. But if the salt loses its flavor, how shall it be seasoned? It is then good for nothing but to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. I often will use the, the analogy of saying, I wish that I could take, I wish I could get all of us. I, could, I wish we could come together. And I wish that we had a time machine. And we could all enter into this machine. And I could take you back to first century Roman Empire in the third decade of the first century. And we all get to walk out and then we see Jerusalem and Judea. And we see this world and we begin to understand how they live. The Romans in the first century had a saying. There is nothing more useful than sun and salt. And there was a reason why they said that. Because they understood the power of the sun and the power of the salt in their everyday life. Many people think of salt as a flavor for food or an essential ingredient around the rim of your margarita glass. But in ancient times, Roman soldiers would often receive an allowance that consisted of money and sometimes consisted of salt. Salt was used as partial payment in order to pay wages in those days. As a matter of fact, the word salary comes from that practice, that ancient practice. And since salt was such a valuable commodity in that world and still is in our world, you have to understand why. In an age where there was no electrical refrigeration, in an age where there was no preservation, in an age where you didn't have the ability to preserve foods, the difference between eating and not eating was often related to salt. Because salt would retard the the spoiling of food. Salt in the Roman world and to a certain extent the Jewish world became a picture of purity, preservation, flavor. Jesus is in effect saying you provide purity. You provide preservation. You retard corruption. You make a bland, empty, tasteless world tasty. The pure in heart, verse 8, purify the world. But look what Jesus says. But if the salt loses its flavor, how shall it be seasoned? Poor salt, ineffective salt, degraded salt, corrupt salt, flavorless salt. Jesus is in effect saying, if you don't make a difference in the world, who will? You've got to understand why this is such an important concept. Who provides preservation and purity? The Bible doesn't say the Hindus or the Muslims or the Mormons are the ones who are the preservation. You are, you are. And if you're not making a difference, who will? In the ancient world, if you got a bad batch of salt, you couldn't just throw it in the orchard. You couldn't just throw it in the garden. You just couldn't throw it out on the plains where the grass would grow. So what would you do with it? You would take what was left of it and put it in a place where it would do little harm. You would place it on the road. You would place it on a path. Salt will kill life. So the place to throw the salt was on the path or the road where it would do no harm. Does Jesus imply that the Christian who's lost their flavor or usefulness become... The objects 
of deserved persecution. Look what Jesus, he uses the term, trampled underfoot by men. At least some Bible writers have suggested such a thing. Dale Bruner writes, quote, This kind of persecution most often takes the form of simple contempt or complete disinterest. These Christians are not jumped on. They're never ambushed or attacked. They're merely ignored or shrugged off. They are so insipid that they're hardly worth persecuting, unquote. And so guess what? If you are living a life of impurity, if you are living a life of no persecution, if you are disconnected from the gospel and disconnected from the Christ and disconnected from a life that is lived in honor to the Lord, then guess what? You don't have to expect anything. So what does Jesus say? What is Jesus saying about salt gone bad or useless salt? He's in effect saying if salt becomes corrupt, it is useless. And by the way, there are certain things, if spoiled, you can use them for something else. But it's not true of Christians. The corrupt Christian can easily misrepresent the gospel. The corrupt Christian can never preserve their surroundings from moral decay. The corrupt Christian can only serve as a bad example. In high school, when I would do stuff wrong on the football field, my coach would say, Geraci, you are the perfect example of what not to do. But mercifully, corrupt Christians can experience the mercy of God and the grace of God and the restoration of God. We can be restored to power and to blessing. You see, Christian, the compromised Christian, the Christian who's disconnected from Christ and the gospel doesn't have to continue to live that way. We are salt. Read it for yourself. You are the salt. You are salt whether you like it or not. The real issue is what kind of an influence will you have? What kind of an example will you be? What difference are we making? Salt from the Dead Sea was mixed with gypsum. And if you went to the Dead Sea and you started harvesting salt from that Dead Sea, you would discover something. It contains gypsum and sulfur. It is absolutely the most... Have you ever smelled rotten eggs? That's what it smells like. It smells disgusting. Imagine putting that rotten, disgusting salt on your food. You can't do it. And that's the idea. This kind of salt only made everything taste bad, smell bad. Pure salt was needed to flavor food. Pure salt was necessary to preserve food. And pure Christians are necessary. In James chapter 1 verse 27, James writes, Pure and undefiled religion before God and the Father is this, To visit the orphan, to visit the widow in their trouble, to keep oneself unspotted from the world. The world needs salt because it's bland and corrupt. Some cultures use salt as a mark of friendship. In the ancient world of the Romans and the North Africans, They would sometimes sit together and when two people shared salt, they were obliged to look out for each other and to watch out for each other's interests. The moment that your worst enemy sat down with you and ate salt with you, you were obligated to treat that person as your friend. Same is true in Italian families. The moment they invite you over for spaghetti and meatballs on Sunday, you're in. That's the idea. 
If your worst enemy, like I said, ate salt with you, you are obligated to treat them like friends. Unbelieving spouses in the New Testament are said to be sanctified by their believing spouse in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. God offered to spare Sodom for the sake of only 10 righteous people. Remember the Lord comes and he speaks to Abraham. This implies that their physical presence was important. The physical presence of righteous people in Sodom and Gomorrah would have delayed judgment, would have retarded judgment. And guess what, believing husband? Guess what, believing spouse? Guess what, believing child? Your belief in your family retards, delays the judgment that's going to inevitably hit. You are salt. Why does God defer judgment? Because we're here. And so the implication seems to be we need to take advantage in our home, in our schools, in our church. In this world, we live in a world, we live in a world where people will say, believe whatever you want. Just do it in the pew or in the chair where you're sitting. Don't bring it out into the very real world. You see the moment, the moment, the moment that you speak of spiritual poverty, the moment that you speak of humility, the moment that you speak of purity in that world, they're going to say, you need to shut up and you need to leave us alone. But guess what? Purity, power. Peace belongs in this world. Some have suggested that the Christian life and the Christian lifestyle is flavorful. It's fun to be a Christian. But the truth is outsiders don't see it that way. People who aren't saved, people who don't know Christ, people who have never experienced the love of God and the grace of God and the mercy of God and the joy of of forgiveness and what it means to have a right relationship with God and Christ, they will sometimes get confused because they'll look at people and they'll go, they'll look at your life or they'll look at your circumstances and they'll wonder whether or not what you say about God and what you say about Christ is really true. For some, the word Christian means dangerous. For others, the word Christian means dull. Julian the Apostate, who was a Roman emperor in the second century and the nephew of the church historian Eusebius, wrote, quote, Have you looked at these Christians closely? Hollow-eyed, pale-cheeked, flat-breasted, they brood their lives away, unspotted by ambition. The sun shines for them, but they don't see it. The earth offers them its fullness, but they don't desire it. All their desire is to renounce and suffer that they may die. Is there a renunciation of the world? Yes. Is there a renunciation of sin? Yes. But he never read the part in the New Testament where it said that everything has been given by God for your enjoyment. It's not wrong, Christian, for you to be happy. It was Spurgeon who said, when you speak of heaven, your face should shine as it were like the sun itself. And when you speak of hell, your regular face will do. Oliver Wendell Holmes was said to have had ambitions to enter the ministry. But he changed his mind when he thought that most gospel ministers acted like undertakers. The world judges Christians to be hypocritical and self-righteous and judgmental. But maybe the most stinging accusation of all, you're boring. You're boring. But what will happen? What will happen? What will happen when faithful followers of Jesus start to live their lives like Jesus? What will happen if you actually begin to walk in in humility and purity and peace? There's a power that will overtake your life. 
You will become like the ocean with its salt. When someone walks into that ocean with an open wound, it's going to sting. I remember the very first time when I swam in the Dead Sea. I had a cut and I walked into the Dead Sea and it stung so bad that I couldn't believe it. We were told, whatever you do, don't put your head under the water. Don't open your eyes. More than one stupid person did exactly like that. And they came up blind. Salt is a preservative. But it also stings. There's a reason why in the original language... And in our translation, it begins with you. You are the salt. That's the emphasis. In what way? You're the only salt. You're the only light. There isn't a number two choice. There isn't a number three choice. The world's corruption, the world's darkness, like an advancing cancer, won't be arrested unless you are salt and light. John MacArthur points out, quote, the very ones who are despised by the world and persecuted by the world become the world's only hope. It was the Duck Dynasty guy. I wish I could remember his his name. Robertson is his last name. But he was on Sean Hannity on Fox News. And Sean was basically asking the question, what's wrong with the world? And he basically said, I'll tell you what's wrong with the world. I'm what's wrong with the world. Human beings are what's wrong with the world. But guess what? The moment that you become right with God in Christ, something right happens. Think about that for just a moment. On on the show, Robertson said, you know why there's no peace? It's because there's no Jesus. Do you know why the world's full of war? It's because there's no Jesus. Do you know why people live in darkness, helpless, hopeless? It's because there's no Jesus, no Jesus, no Jesus. He's on this national program telling people that they need to get right with God and trust Christ. Why is the world corrupt? It's because of sin. The Bible is clear that it's sin that corrupts and kills. James 1.5 says, Then when desire is conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin, when it's full grown, brings forth death. G.K. Chesterton said, quote, Countless acts by millions of self-centered people instead of God-centered individuals may reasonably be thought to be destroying the world, unquote. We shake our heads at the evening news and say, what's wrong with the world? And the right answer is, I'm what's wrong with the world. Unless I have a right relationship with God and Christ, I'm what's wrong with the world unless my sin is forgiven and look what Jesus says you are the light of the world the world needs light because it's dark again the emphasis is on you you are the light not islam Not Hinduism, not Buddhism, not atheism, not socialism, not Marxism, not political conservatism. You are the light of the world. You are what's going to make a difference. Salt works secretly. Light works openly. Salt works on the inside. Light comes from the outside. If salt is the indirect influence of the gospel on the world, the light is the full frontal attack visible open obvious salt can retard corruption but it can't make the corruption go away only light can do that only light is powerful enough to burn away the darkness many people around the world will be Celebrating the Reverend Martin Luther King Jr.'s birthday. It was the Reverend Martin Luther King who said, Darkness cannot make darkness go away. Hate cannot make hatred go away. Only love can make hate go away. Only light can make the darkness go away. 
And there's only one thing that can make sin go away. It's Jesus. Light not only reveals what is false and wrong, it invites you to do what's right and true. We use it in our own culture and society. You yourself have probably said, guess what? One day, all of this is going to come out in the open. You yourself have said, one day, this is all going to be brought to light. You know. Everyone knows. C.S. Lewis said something Similar to what David wrote in the Psalms. In Psalm 36, 9, it says, For with you is the fountain of life. In your light we see light. C.S. Lewis said, I believe in Christianity as I believe that the sun has risen. Not only because I see it, but by it I see everything else. When Jesus is born again inside of your heart and the reality of who Christ is all of a sudden becomes so apparent, that's when you're able to see everything. Light must be visible and available in order to be effective. We're to be the light. Look what it says. You are the light of the... I'm going to suggest to you that means the whole world. We're to bring the whole Bible to the whole world. This isn't just simply light in your home. It isn't just simply light in your community. It isn't just simply light in the state. It is light in the whole world. It's the light of the secular world, the materialist world. We're to bring the light to this broken world. The Bible teaches that God is the source of light. Remember, the Bible says that God is love, but it also says that God is light. And in him is no darkness whatsoever. God is the substance of light. Jesus said, I'm come as a light into the world in John 12, 35. We're commanded to walk in the light in 1 John 1, 7. We're to declare the gospel of light in 2 Corinthians chapter 4. Even the armor that we possess is, is described as the armor of light in Romans 13, 12. This means that it has this profound ability as armor to protect, but it also has the ability to divide. The light will always divide the darkness. So the light protects. The light separates. Second Corinthians 6, 4. What communion has light with darkness? You are the light of the world. There is no second choice or third choice or fourth choice. You are to serve as a reflection of the true light. Jesus is the light. Like the moon, the moon can't radiate light in and of itself. In order for the moon to shine, it has to reflect the sun's shine. And in order for you to shine, guess what? The presence of Jesus must be in your life. The Bible teaches that God is our only hope, the only source. In the 90s, the newsboys sang a song, Shine. Who would have thought that 90s music is now on the oldies station? They used to sing, Shine. Make them wonder what you've got. Make them wish that they were not on the outside looking bored. I love that. Shine. Make them wonder what you've got. And guess what? When you shine, when you live an uncompromising and principled commitment to the lordship and the love of Jesus, guess what? Your life becomes attractive. Even though your unbelieving friends don't want to admit it, When they lay their head down at night, when they try to close their eyes, when they try to go to sleep, they're living a life of profound worry, grief, sometimes anger, sometimes hatred. They're going to bed and they're wondering about their life and they're wondering about their future. Unbelievers don't have assurance of salvation. They don't have the assurance that they're going to heaven And so we see the disciple is witness. Look what it says at the end of the verse. A city that is set on a hill cannot be hidden. 
When Jesus says a city that is set on a hill cannot be hidden, he almost certainly, as he's delivering this sermon, I've been there now all, over a dozen times. You are there on the mount um, where the Sermon on the Mount takes place. Before you is the, the Sea of Galilee. Behind you is a little rolling hill. And on that rolling hill, you can imagine that just if you look all the way to your right, you're going to be headed towards Jerusalem. If you look all the way to your left, you're going to see a city. It's called Sepphoris. And this city is located on the top of the mountain so that the people, even in the Galilee, as you look at it, this, this city, when they light their lights and they put on their camps, you can see this place glowing. The idea, not hidden, conspicuous to all. What's the point? This is the testimony of the godly. Open, conspicuous, the brighter the light, the further it can be seen. It was the Greek philosopher Plato who said that we can excuse a child for being afraid of the dark, but what about the man who is afraid of the light? Even the ancient philosophers knew that there was a difference between darkness and light, emptiness and fullness. In the movie Gladiator, there's, there's this amazing scene. If you're unfamiliar with the movie Gladiator, it's a, it's a brutal movie. It's based on the true story of an emperor named Commodus. Marcus Aurelius was the first emperor in five generations to give birth to a son, and his son was a jerk. As a matter of fact, Gibbon wrote The Decline and the Fall of the Roman Empire based on Commodus. In the real world, Commodus was killed by a gladiator. But he wasn't killed by a gladiator in the arena. He was killed in his sleep. But there's one telling, telling portion in that movie where Commodus is speaking to his sister. And he is arguably the most powerful, influential, one of the wealthiest human beings in the whole wide world, but he lives in a, a life of emptiness and darkness and selfishness. And he says to his sister, come lay down with me. And she says, my brother, are you still afraid of the dark? You see, the people who are living in this world apart from God, apart from Christ, apart from his love, apart from his forgiveness, apart from his grace and his mercy, they, even though they don't want to admit it, they are afraid. And so in verse 15, it says, nor do they light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a lampstand and give light to all our, who are in the house. He's speaking of this overarching issue of testimony, a visual testimony. This is more than just a visual testimony. This is the quiet, steady shining of a consistent life. In that world, they don't have electricity. You can't just flip the switch. They would have a, a lamp that was made of clay. That that's an image of it. What they would do is that where you see the hole, they would fill it with olive oil or some other oil, and they would put a, 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 a wick there that was rolled of either cotton or linen, and they would light it. And so what you do is you put it in the most conspicuous place where it's going to provide the most amount of, of light. That's, this is the quiet, steady shining of a consistent life. And so again, even when he's using that imagery of the home, home. You put it in your home. Husbands and wives in their homes become examples and influential. Children who are exposed to the word of God and the character of God and the gospel of God, it will be met by one of two things, belief or skepticism. But the thing that will make the character of God, the nature of God, and the word of God come the most true in your children's lives is because you believe it, you believe it, you believe it. It's crazy to me how many people will show up at church. I'll say, why are you here? And they go, you know, we, we want our, our kids to have some stability and morality. So we, we need to bring them to a place where there's stability and morality. 
Well, what about you? Do you think stability and morality detached from the gospel, detached from Christ, detached from his love? Is that what you want? I'm not against stability and morality, but I'm saying that stability and morality are almost never, ever a possibility unless there's a right relationship with God and Christ. So when Jesus says in verse 16, let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. This is the application of the section. This is is the application. When he basically says poverty, humility, Hunger for thirst and righteousness, the desire to exercise mercy, to walk in purity, to be a peacemaker who invites persecution. When you are light and when you are salt, let nothing hinder you from letting God in Christ shine in you that expression good works translates a very unique greek word it's it's the greek word kalos this isn't so much the quantity of works but the quality of work the attractiveness of it let's take a moment and peek ahead at chapter 6 verse 1 Jesus says, take heed that you do not do your charitable deeds before men to be seen by them. Otherwise, you have no reward from your Father in heaven. Here, Jesus says, let your light shine before men. Well, which is it, Jesus? And your unbelieving, skeptical critic will say, see, the Bible is filled with hopeless contradictions. This isn't a hopeless contradiction. Because Jesus isn't saying one thing and then another thing. What Jesus is basically noting is that there's a difference between the motive in one and the motive in the other. You see here in verses 16, the motive is you are doing this because God in Christ through you is living out your life before the Lord. Citizens of the kingdom let their light shine. To glorify the Father in heaven. Here's the idea. You're exercising humility, poverty, mercy, peace. Not in order for people to see you because you're living out your life. That's the idea. You're living out what Jesus has for you and wants for you. That's the idea. The good works are called beautiful deeds in John chapter 10 verse 11. This suggests two things. Something that is attractive and something that is genuine. When Jesus says, I'm the good shepherd, it's the same word, kalos. Something that is genuine. Something that is attractive. But Jesus isn't just the good shepherd. He's the great shepherd. Not just because he's beautiful and attractive. And authentic. But because he's going to rise from the dead. So what are these good works that Jesus is talking about? They are those things that allow people to see Jesus in you. Here is the idea. Authenticity. Attraction. What they do is they create a situation. Not so that people admire you. But they admire the the Lord that you love. They admire the Jesus that you serve. They see Jesus in you. And they glorify their Father in heaven. The difference between here and chapter 6 is for the person who says, I'm going to give so that people think I'm generous. I'm going to pray so that people think that I'm holy. I'm going to act like a solid citizen so that people will think I'm a solid citizen. Jesus' answer is, if you give for other people to see, if you act in such a way in order to leave an impression with somebody else, guess what? You have your reward. What is it that you want to do? You want to impress people? Well, good for you. Guess what? You've impressed them. But what if your motivation isn't to impress your mother, your 
brother, your father, your sister, your family, your friends? What if your motivation isn't anything other than to be faithful to Jesus in your speech and in your conduct? How powerful is a life lived for Christ? Well, the very definition of influence is that power that is exerted over the minds of others or the acts of others without apparent effort or the results of the qualities, the position or the reputation of the person that's exerting the power. And so when we talk about example and we talk about influence, the very definition of example and influence is that you walk into a situation and the whole world is different because you are there. We let our lights shine. You've experienced to a certain extent, maybe when your mother walked into the room or your brother walked into the room or your father walked into the room or your boss walks into the room. We let our light shine, not to bring attention to ourselves, but to the Lord. It was said of Robert Murray McShane, a, a godly Scottish minister from the last century, that his life was such that people, when they would meet him, they would fall to their knees and they would accept Christ as their Savior just by looking at him. I don't know if that's true. But I do know that certain people like Billy Graham remind people Not of Billy Graham, but of Billy Graham's message. It was years ago, my friend Franklin Graham was on Jay Leno's Tonight Show. And uh, when when Franklin went on the show, Franklin does what Franklin always does. Hi. Hey, Franklin, how's it going? Everything's going great now that I've received Christ as my Savior. I've turned from my sin and I've received him as my Lord and my Savior. In this broadcast, Jay said something really interesting. He said that he was nervous having Franklin on the show. And Franklin said, why are you nervous? And he said, because I know that your father's watching right now. Now, I want you to think about this for just a moment. Millions and millions of people watch The Tonight Show. Jay Leno isn't concerned about the millions and millions of people. What is it about this one person watching this one show that will cause Jay to rethink what he might say or what he might do on that program? And that's why people are different when you show up. Do people know when you show up? Do they even care? You see, you will be an influence, either for good or for evil. You will be an example of either sorrow or joy. And just what kind of a difference you make depends on you. Jesus is the true light that came down from heaven. That's why the Apostle John says that was the true light which gives light to every man who comes into the world. Augustine wrote, do not believe you are a light to yourself. The light is that which illumines every person coming into the world. Your light was never meant simply for you. Several years ago, the Christian Life and Faith magazine presented some unusual facts about two families that were born in 1677. Two families they contrasted. An immoral man who married a very licentious woman and a moral man who married a moral woman. 1,900 descendants came from the generations by the immoral man who married the licentious woman. They tracked the offspring of the... 1,900 descendants, 771 were criminals, 250 were arrested for various offenses, 60 were thieves, 39 were convicted of murder, 40 of the women were known to have venereal diseases. These people spent a combined total of 1,300 years behind bars and cost the state of New York nearly $3 million. This is when $3 million was a lot of money. The other family was the Edwards family. The third generation included Jonathan Edwards, who was the great New England revival preacher, 
who sparked the Great Awakening, who became the president of Princeton University. Of the 1,344 descendants, many were college presidents and professors. 186 became ministers of the gospel. Many, many more were active in their church. 86 became United States senators. Three became congressmen, 30 judges, one vice president of the United States. Not one reference is made of anyone spending one day in jail or the poorhouse. Not all children of good parents become useful citizens. And not all children of bad parents become unproductive citizens. But the possibility, the possibility of your child getting it right is going to be enhanced If he or she lives in a home where love prevails and where Jesus is Lord and where the Bible is taught, where father and mother live for Jesus and provide a strong incentive and prayer, like I said, is offered and parental example and influence is powerful for good or evil. You see, part of your immortality may lie, not just simply in the things that you left behind, but in the people whose lives you've touched. There was an old Puritan writer named Thomas Watson who prayed, Oh Lord, forgive me for what I've done. Sanctify what I am and order what I shall be. That could be our prayer. Have I been less than a perfect example? Forgive me for what I've done. Do I have an opportunity to live a life of purity, peace, humility? Help me be someone different. You see, your example will determine your influence. That's what Jesus is saying. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we pray that we could be the salt and the light. Lord, we pray that we wouldn't be content or even deceived into thinking that somebody else is the salt and somebody else is the light. Heavenly Father, we know that there's no second choice or third choice, that we are the men and women that you've called to preserve, to delay judgment, to present the gospel that real broken people can receive real life if they'll turn from their sin if they'll turn to the Savior and trust Him. And so again, Lord, like the old Puritan writer, forgive us for what we've been. Sanctify what we are. And Lord, lead us in that direction so that we can be salt and light. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, saints, arise.